Welcome to another episode of Out the Rabbit Hole here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We're also on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Robert Larson. This is our December 8th, 2009 edition of the show. 8.04 p.m. on the clock here in Irvine, California. Before we get fully underway, a couple uh, quick reminders. First of all, the opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. And if you want to give me some feedback on the show, I always appreciate that. You can email me at rglarson at org. You can also catch me on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash rglarson. If you ask most people to name important folk protest records of the 60s, they probably wouldn't name something by Johnny Cash or even think of Johnny Cash as a folk protest singer. But Cash did record a record that fits that bill, and those who are aware of it do acknowledge its power and intensity. It, however, has remained obscure for all these decades. The reasons for that are part of a larger fascinating and compelling story full of controversy and drama. It's all captured in a wonderful new book called A Heartbeat and a Guitar, Johnny Cash and the Making of Bitter Tears. Our special guest today is the author Antonino D'Ambrosio. Antonino has had his writings appear in The Nation, The Progressive, and The Believer. He's directed films including No Free Lunch and previously authored Let Fury Have the Power, The Punk Politics of Joe Strummer. Antonino, welcome to the show today. Great to be with you. Yeah, it's great to have you. Uh, Excellent job on this book. I have thoroughly enjoyed reading it and been uh, quite uh, got it gotten a great history lesson. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, it, it's a it's a wonderful uh, work. So, uh, yeah, tell us how you discovered uh, "Bitter Tears" ballad ballads of the American Indian. Uh, you know, I, it's, a, it's a very ironic story in some ways, but. In my prior book, Let Fury Have the Hour, the book about the clash of Joe Strummer, as I was finishing it, I discovered that uh, Joe Strummer and Johnny Cash had met briefly in Rick Rubin's studio in Los Angeles, and they had recorded a cover of Redemption Song, the Bob Marley, uh, uh, great classic Bob Marley song. And in my research of putting that essay together about their meeting and that recording of the song, I discovered quite accidentally, uh, this, this protest album, Bitter Tears. And uh, as I was uh, fast forward a few months and the book came out, as I was on my book tour, I actually had the, the, the good fortune of discovering an original pre- pressing of the record. And uh, as I write about in the introduction of the book, it, when I slipped uh, the record out of the dust jacket, uh, the letter... Uh, that Johnny Cash had written the billboard fell to my feet. And uh, when I read the scathing indictment of the censorship that he encountered because of putting this record together, uh, the whole book just uh, appeared in my head. And, uh, and that's how it was born. Yeah, go, go into a little more detail about, you know, those kinds of things you were feeling when you, you saw this album and, and all these questions get just going through your head. I really enjoyed reading that in the introduction there. Well, Robert, I have to say, it, was, it really was one of those moments where uh, 
there's a moment of transcendence in terms of what, what music can do, the power of it. So as I was reading this letter, I put the record on the turntable, and I ended up listening to it for over an hour. It's only eight songs. It's a very short record, um, but incredibly powerful. And it's, for everything about the record, is, is a counterpoint to the calcified myth of Johnny Cash. Uh, this is 1964 that he made the record, so it's four years before he played at Folsom Prison, and six years before he played, before he recorded The Man in Black. And uh, on the cover of the record, he has his cropped hair, and he's got his fist raised over his head. And, and uh, you know, this is the first and only record that he made that was de- dedicated to one social issue, and it was just... Uh, and, and, immensely and intensely powerful. Uh, the, the storytelling is so poignant, but it's also incredible incredible in terms of its metaphorical power of what he was trying to say about that particular time, not just on behalf of Native people, but um, you know, for the state of the United States and the social upheavals going on, it was the the rise of the Vietnam War and uh, the height of the Civil Rights Movement. And, uh, you know, learning more about, as I looked at the liner notes and discovering that five of the eight songs are written by Peter LaFarge, a little-known folk musician who uh, wrote with such power um, that it made me want to discover more of what led Cash to this record. And, And that's where I felt that I could tell this story in a complex way, you know, multiple narratives. I weave five or six multiple narratives to tell the story of this record, but it's really revealing a cultural history that's been hidden for so long. And, uh, you know, along the way, uh, you know, Bob Dylan uh, told me in a letter that uh, that that uh, Peter LaFarge was the best of the of the of the protest folk singers and this person is this musician is per, essentially unknown and uh, and Cash was captivated by that and, and ended up recording five of five of the eight songs on that record Lafarge songs including the Ballad of Ira Hayes. Yeah, so so this album came out in uh, 1964, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 1964. So really cutting protest record. Johnny Cash did. Most people do not know about it. And this was uh, on behalf of uh, Native Americans, on, on behalf of uh, uh, American Indians, or their, their uh, rights, their, their struggle, uh, which was, uh, you know, in 1964 America, a lot, lot, lot of uh, white Americans weren't, weren't ready to hear this. And so he, <laughs> he, he does this in, in 64. So obviously this is a really going out on a limb. But uh, this, none of this would have been possible for Cash if he had not crossed paths with the, the person you just mentioned, uh, Peter Lafarge. So who was uh, Peter Lafarge, and, and, and how did he and uh, Cash uh, cross paths? Peter Lafarge is just, he's just one of those uh, extremely eccentric, uh, interesting characters in history that, uh, you know, really are, the, really are become the key movers and shakers of history, but uh, remain in the shadows. Um, Peter Lafarge was the son of Oliver Lafarge, who 
spent, dedicated most of his life to fighting on uh, fighting for Native American uh, justice. And uh, he, Oliver Lafarge, wrote a novel called Laughing Boy that won the Pulitzer Prize in the 1930s. So Peter Lafarge inherited a, a lot of his uh, interest and sympathy for the Native cause from his father. And then, you know, he he, he kind of... Uh, he was a journeyman in life in so many ways. He was a rodeo um, block rider. He was in the Navy. Uh, he was an actor. He was a playwright. And then he stumbled into the folk scene in, the, in 1959, 1960, uh, folk revival in Greenwich Village. And uh, the interesting thing about Peter Lafarge was that when John Hammond was brought, the famous record producer, was brought back to Columbia to help Columbia capture the youth market that they were so out of touch with. He turned his, he set his sights on folk music. And the first musician he signed, folk musician he signed, was Peter Lafarge three months before he signed Bob Dylan. And, uh, it, and they recorded Ira Hayes and other ballads. Um, his time at Columbia was short because he, he, like Cash, had his own personal demons that he battled, uh, specifically with uh, drugs and alcohol, but also mental health issues. Uh, but it didn't stop him from composing some of the most compelling protest ballads of the time, uh, including the Ballad of Ira Hayes and As Long as the Grass Shall Grow, Coyote, My Little Brother, uh, Radioactive Eskimo. There's just a ton of it that are unknown. And uh, Cash had come to New York City in 1962 to debut at Carnegie Hall. And what was supposed to be an exciting kind of career turning point for Cash turned into a disaster, a catastrophe. And uh, he was withered to the bone because of his drug use. Uh, Marshall Grant, Johnny Cash's bass player, very first person I interviewed for this book, and Johnny Western, who was his MC for 40 years, uh, both said that Cash had gotten down to about 155 pounds, and Cash was a pretty big man, so he was very, very, very thin at this point, and uh, the pill popping had had dried out his voice, and so he really couldn't sing that night, and they were going to record um, the show at Columbia was, and they never ended up turning on their their recording equipment, so... After the show, uh, Cash disappeared into the uh, New York City night. Nobody knew where he went. So I, this is where a lot of my investi investigative journalism skills came in handy. And uh, as a lot of the people are no longer with us. And I discovered that he had hooked up with uh, another folk singer named Ed McGurdy and traveled down to Greenwich Village and um, ended up in the Gaslight Cafe, famous folk uh, night spot during that time. And on the stage was Peter Lafarge, who was who happened to be performing the Ballad of Ira Hayes. And Cash was introduced to Peter Lafarge McGurdy and then they spent some time together. And Cash never forgot those songs. And uh, one of the things that's interesting about Johnny Cash is that from the time that he uh, burst onto the scene, the music scene in nineteen fifty five, he'd wanted to record folk albums, Americana albums. Uh, he wanted to do a live uh, prison album as early as 1957. Mm. But Sun Records had blocked his attempts to do these things. 
Sam Phillips thought that they weren't going to be profitable. So Cash left uh, Sun Records for Columbia in 58-59 with the promise that he'd be able to do these records. And, of course, Columbia wasn't so supportive. Uh, you know, they tried to block his efforts as well. And only hits would allow him, the, you know, the coverage to do these kind of things. So in 64, he had just come off the biggest hit of, his, of the 60s up to that point, which was Ring of Fire. And it, given, and it given him the coverage where Columbia would let him do the folk record he wanted to do. And he sat down with his producers and they listened to the Lafarge tunes. And they agreed that Cash could do an entire record of Indian folk protest ballads. And, you know, that's, that's how he came to record those out. The interesting thing, too, I must point out that Cash always considered himself a folk singer. And a lot of the great musicians, you know, that I've spent time with from Joe Strummer to even Chuck D, consider themselves folk singers because they're telling stories of the day that uh, have relevance socially, politically, culturally. And uh, in 57, he'd re- he had written an Indian folk protest ballad called Old Apache Squaw, which does appear on Bitter Tears. And uh, and. and First Son in Columbia denied him the opportunity to record it. So is it, there's a very long history uh, for Cash with the issues of Native people and also the, uh, the influence of folk music mm-hmm. uh, so, on, his, on, his, on his career. So yeah, this didn't just come out of nowhere. He had kind of these sorts of feelings of feeling himself as a, as a folk singer of, of having concerns about these issues about the the downtrodden and uh the meeting uh, in Greenwich Village that night with Peter Lafarge was just uh, more uh, of a catalyst for something he already had inside of him and and uh they were able to actually come together and uh, create something bigger than either of them separately yes and that that the thing that's very interesting about Johnny Cash that has been kind of, uh, you know, this is just what happens. And, you know, a lot of what I've been telling people when I've been talking about this book is that it's been cultural rescue, not just for Cash and the unknown folk musician Peter Lafarge and the little-known Native movement that was happening, but also folk music in general, which has become kind of uh, stereotyped and mocked in some ways when we look back on it. You know, he had great reverence for the storytelling ability of bringing people together. You know, he revered the Carter family and Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger and, and uh, Cisco Houston uh, and a lot of the contemporary artists of the day, like Tom Paxton. And he, he, you know, he considered himself uh, a great craftsman uh, in, terms of, uh, in terms of being a storyteller and and a composer, and uh, he wanted to have that opportunity to lend his voice uh, in, in, in highlighting a, a part of the human condition that was invisible mm-hmm. to most people. And it's something that he had great empathy for coming from his rural uh, poor roots in Arkansas and the situation they dealt with the, the Great Flood in Arkansas. And, you know, Cash was a very sophisticated and complex person. He was very, very smart. And, you know, understood the world around him, you know, in concert with 
his fellow citizens. And I think this is why this record is the true portrait uh, of who he was as a musician and as a human being because it allowed him to, to use his music and his art in trying to achieve the most powerful thing that it can achieve, which is telling the truth. Because he's telling stories that are true that no one, uh, you know, cared to listen to or, you know, write about in the newspapers to talk about in, uh, in, in, the, in, in print uh, radio or TV news. And, uh, you know, As Long as the Grass Shall Grow is about the breaking of the treaties of the time of the Seneca in in Pennsylvania and their their loss of land and you know and these that kind of that that those stories touched Cash deeply because they were stories that never changed throughout history. There are stories of struggle that exist from the from you know in his past, in that present, in our present, you know, and it was important for him to record those songs as a testament to that struggle, but also as a way to say, you know, uh, it is important to bear witness and hopefully bring about some kind of change. Yeah, uh, dealing with the universal conditions, universal struggles, uh, and uh, as the citizen artist, the term you uh, mentioned in the book a few times, uh, this is mm-hmm. out the rabbit hole, KUCI in Irvine. I'm Robert Larson. Uh, we're speaking with Antonino. D'Ambrosio, and we're talking about his wonderful new book, A Heartbeat and a Guitar, Johnny Cash and the Making of Bitter Tears. And, and so, uh, yeah, Johnny Cash uh, teams up with uh, uh, folk singer-songwriter Peter Lafarge to, to put together this uh, album mm-hmm. in, in 1964, Bitter Tears, uh, Ballads of the American Indian, and uh, the... Uh, the song that that is probably most likely uh, most people have heard is the Ballad of Ira Hayes, if they've heard anything off of this. And uh, so, so let's talk a little bit about that song. Uh, first, uh, about the character Ira Hayes. I mean, this is this is a classic. This is a classic uh, piece of folk music in so many ways of that time. And something that, for me, you know, placing myself in Cash's shoes as I, as I told this story, that really resonated with him. I, Ira Hayes was a Pima Indian from uh, from 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 a tribe of, uh, based in Arizona, who um, throughout their history were known as a peaceful tribe and as uh, great innovators and pioneers of agriculture and irrigation, working in harmony uh, in a sustainable way with the land. And he had built an irrigation system that had lasted 2,000 years until the Army Corps of Engineers came in and destroyed it in the 1890s, literally drying up the Pima. Uh, they could no longer live sustainably as they had done for, for hundreds and hundreds of years. And this is the, this is the context the, the, the backdrop that Ira Hayes lived in. And so in the ni- when the 1940s rolled around, with no opportunities, he decided to uh, join the Marines. And uh, his motivation was uh, to bring honor for himself and hopefully his, his people. And he ends up excelling in the Marines. He becomes one of the first paratroopers in the country's history. He's a great soldier, and he ends up going to fight in Iwo Jima, 
major turning point in World War II and an incredibly bloody, bloody, bloody battle. Of uh, 250 men in his battalion, only 27 survived. Ira Hayes was one of those. And Ira Hayes is forever immortalized uh, in the flag-raising photo, Iwo Jima, maybe the most iconic photo of the 20th century. That's turned into a statue that sits in Washington. And it's his hands that are, are holding the flag at the top of the photo and mm-hmm. in the statue. So he's really the most prominent soldier in the, uh, in the photo. So he's asked to come back from the war and, uh, and, and essentially paraded around the country to raise money for the war bond effort. And he probably would have been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder if there was such a term uh, or designation during that time, but there wasn't. And he couldn't handle it. He just, every time he would see parents of dead soldiers, he would break down uncontrollably and weep. So he asked to be sent back to the war. And at this point, he was starting to drink heavily. So the depression, the, the, the torture of the memories of surviving, feeling guilty that he survived, coupled with the, the drinking, he went back to the war, was honorably discharged, and came back to the United States and it changed drastically. And uh, instead of being accepted, he found a great deal of intolerance and, uh, and uh, you know, the confusion that he experienced over that created more of an impulse to drink and he kept going downward and downward and was getting arrested for public drunkenness until he ended up uh, being sent back to, or not being sent back, but essentially finding his way back to his reservation in Arizona where they essentially gave him the job of raising and lowering the flag every day. Mm-hmm. And there's a powerful line in the song that Peter Lafarge writes, you know, they gave him that job when you throw a dog a bone. Yeah. And it's just, you know, it's just devastating kind of, uh, you know, just really, really is vividly clear in someone's mind when you hear it, that in the song of what's happening here. And Ira Hayes, Get to mysteriously, is the circumstances around his death are very mysterious. He was involved in a poker game. His brothers were there. They left him. He stayed. There was some kind of fight that happened. And the next thing that you know, uh, Ira Hayes is found dead in a shallow ditch of water, frozen to death, and of alcoholism. And, of course, you can add, add the, 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 the toxic mixture of American intolerance there. And uh, what I did when I wrote this book and I was researching Peter Lafarge's notes, the little notes that they are that there are at the Smithsonian. I decided uh, to go uh, and follow Ira Hayes' story, just as Peter Lafarge would have during that time. With meaning that I went through all the newspaper accounts I could find, and you could just see when you're reading the newspaper accounts, many of which are very almost disdainful of telling the story of Ira Hayes and. There's very little empathy, let alone sympathy, for what was going on here. For a person that a few years before was considered a hero and uh, now considered some, someone to you know, essentially laugh at, um, you, know, you could see that this, is, this would just have pushed Lafarge to the point of some kind of intense rage. And that's when he penned, penned the song The Bout of Our Age, which in less than four minutes is just this 
amazingly beautiful and powerful account of Ira Hayes' story, but much more a metaphor for, for uh, the American historical mistreatment of Native people. Yeah. And, go so, ahead. Yeah, so uh, Lafarge j- just felt this story needed to be told, the real story, and uh, Cash heard that song and felt he identified with it in some way and that he needed to record this, and so that's how that ended up on the Bitter Tears album. Yeah, you know, the, the important thing here is that Cash felt kinship with Lafarge and Ira Hayes. He had served in the military, and he was scarred by his military service. While it wasn't as intense as Ira Hayes, not many people would encounter an intense war story such as Ira Hayes. Right. Uh, you know, he really grew, he grew, during his time he grew to hate uh, war, and, uh, and, and as Pia Lafarge did with his time in the Navy. So all three men are linked in that way. All through uh, Ira Hayes, his struggle in rural poverty is something that Cash experienced. And, you know, Cash, Cash often said, in, and I have a line in the book, that he believed in um, socialism. He, he called it communalism. And he believed in that because his family was the beneficiaries of the New Deal policies that gave them, that resettled farmers in his region on plots of land and gave them some kind of subsistence, subsistence living. And, you know, Cash understood that, you know, a society needs to kind of come together and look out for each other. And he saw that wasn't happening for Native people, you know. Uh, he, 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 saw that, he saw what was happening for, for blacks in this country and some emerging, other emerging social movements and realized that, you know, no true democracy can call itself a democracy or have free people if there are people that are locked out in such a way as Native people are. And I think that when he heard Pierre Lafarge's the succinct, powerful account, there was he knew that he could you know put his own spin on it. Because Lafarge wasn't the greatest performer or singer; he was a terrific songwriter. And but Cash had the had the you know the the polish. He had the he had the style and aesthetic yeah. sensibilities to take it to another level. Yeah. Well, let's take a little break and listen to the ballad of Ira Hayes. All right. Great. Okay, here we go. The Ballad of Ira Hayes. This is the Out the Rabbit Hole radio program. Robert Larson here. Uh, we're having a discussion today with Antonino D'Ambrosio, and uh, we're talking about his book, A Heartbeat and a Guitar, Johnny Cash and the Making of Bitter Tears. Yes, a uh, very powerful song. You're, you're right, Antonino. Uh, it's um, just uh, very succinct and has the the layers where you know the story of one man is also a, a metaphor for an entire people it just perfectly written it is it's a, it, to me you know it's interesting that cash decided to do see, a lot of this what you know a lot of what moves a lot of the great artists the what separates Johnny Cash and artists like Cash, which are only a handful, is a sincerity and authenticity that they have. And this, you know, was not a calculated pose for him to do this record. 
Uh, you know, even though it was the height of the folk revival, he could have easily just, you know, done what was comfortable and what a lot of people were singing about, whether it be of the civil rights, um, civil rights issues and, and the like. You know, to go this step further or deeper and add another plaintiff in the case against American justice was a very bold thing, but also done in a way that was very sincere. And, and what I mean by that is that he started seeing what was happening, and he, he saw the rise in Vietnam and saw that there was a, another war looming where the United States was going to wage war against another group of in, indigenous people and how misguided uh, that was. And, uh, you know, the story of one man representing so many, uh, and not just Native people, but people all around the world, because it's also a person who was poor. It's a very sophisticated uh, song that can be applied to many different uh, groups uh, because of of the of, of the circumstances of Ira Hayes and something that Cash felt connected to. And um, you know, he, he uh, because he had this unique sensibility, his voice is the instrument itself in this song that adds another lit layer of pain and, and anguish. And then in the book, I talk about his own personal struggles and his own agony. That also kind of feeds into it. And, uh, you know, adding the military taps with the flute is just, uh, you know, these touches make it so, so compelling that it's a song that is timeless in so many ways. It can be applied to our current struggles uh, now yeah. in Iraq or in Afghanistan. It's almost uh, seems to me that it's like uh, it wasn't like Cash said, oh, I, I'd like to do, do this, or this would be interesting, or this would be good for my career, or I'm going to mm -hmm. capitalize on this. It was like, I have to do this. I can't yeah. be true to myself if I don't do this. So that, that's, the thing that, um, that, that's the thing that's really important. You're, you're totally right about that, Robert. It's, you know, he had to hit Ring of Fire, and that's what Columbia wanted him to continue to do. And, uh, you know, he decided that he was going to make this record. And uh, he did everything that he did around this record in my, you know, investigation and research just points to, the, to how sincere and deeply connected he was to it. For example, he decided once he, they all, he, he was able to assemble his team, and he assembled some of the finest musicians around, including Norman Blake, the great dope, maybe the greatest dope player of the last 50 years. Uh, these, these are just the most exceptional artists that could make this such a beautiful record that it is. He uh, asked, he contacted Ira Hayes' mother and asked if he'd come and spend time with her and the family in Arizona on the Pima Reservation, and she agreed. And, uh, you know, things like that are just great indications of where he was. You know, he could have been celebrating the success of Ring of Fire, and, and, I, and I walked the line, the record had just come out a few, mm -hmm. few months before that. Instead, he goes down to a reservation, he spends time immersing himself in these stories of the Apache, of the Cherokee. Um, for example, when he leaves uh, the reservation, he leaves Ira Hayes' mother, she hands him 
an Apache Tear, which is a, a volcanic translucent black stone uh, when it's held up to the light, it's translucent, that represents the first and only time that Apache women shed tears, which was the last cavalry attack on Native people in this country where they slaughtered many Apache, the QL's cavalry, left them, left their bodies rotting on the ground and denied the Apache their traditional burial, burial rites, which was putting the dead up on stilts. Mm-hmm. And uh, they marched the women, the children, the men who couldn't fight uh, on a long journey to another reservation. And along the way, the, the legend has it that, they, that the women shed tears for the first time, and when the tears hit the ground, they turned black. So Cash took that Apache tear, polished it, and mounted it around his neck and wore it during the whole recording session of Bitter Tears, but also wrote a song, Apache Tears, which in many ways was, uh, is, for me, in my opinion, one of the most important anti-war songs ever written. And uh, as we all know, Cash had written a few of these anti-war songs, What is True is Man in Black. These are... They're all anti-war songs in their own way. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he said in the song, no fight ever took this land, so don't raise your dust when you pass here, which is a clear statement about no matter what you try to do with, through violence to acquire power, it's just not sustainable. And, uh, and, it's, and it's also uh, you know, a great human tragedy. Mm-hmm. And it's powerful. It's powerful stuff. And that. Apache Tears is, is one of the songs that Cash wrote mm-hmm. that appears on the album. So, yeah, he did the, the album, uh, Bitter Tears, uh, mm-hmm. Ballads of the American Indian, and uh, the record company did not really want him to do this, and uh, once it came out, uh, did not promote it. And mm-hmm. then uh, the radio stations wouldn't play it, and mm-hmm. uh, then uh, there, there was... Quite an angry backlash uh, from some fans. Uh, could you talk a little about that? Well, you know what's interesting is that uh, you're right, Columbia, as I write about in the book, I had a, you know, there's all, there was a quiet campaign of censorship. And what I mean by that is that there's been a history, particularly in the South, where they will express their protest by simply ignoring something that they don't want to deal with. And, you know, the classic uh, uh, tool of theirs during the civil rights era, and it's something they applied to cash. And, you know, with that, though, a lot of, a lot of anonymous um, attacks, because no one would stand up and, and take credit for it. So, for example, a, a studio exec heard from another studio exec, heard from another studio exec, that, that there was a message that was going to be sent to Cash. He, ha- he has to entertain, not educate, which I write about in the book. Mm-hmm. Or uh, radio stations, DJs, and program radio programmers who had been more than happy to play Ring of Fire all around the clock were now saying, you know, through to Johnny Western and other and other Cash associates that when Johnny Johnny comes back, comes to his senses, they'll play his records again and. You know, why is he associating with these long-haired hippie types? Because, of course, folk music was considered at the time to be something of, you know, a liberal northern elite tradition, which is kind of uh, ridiculous to think about because, (laughs) you know, the great folk singer, the folk 
folk uh, music comes from the Carter family and Jimmy Rogers, and these are the people that you not only was Clash Cash influenced by. At this point, he was heavily immersed in the Carter family. Uh, you know, all uh, June Carter sings on all the songs on Bitter Tears, and um, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, so yeah, and uh, at there was a point. Okay, the records, uh, st- the radio stations weren't weren't playing uh, the Ballad of Ira Hayes. And uh, they weren't playing any of this album. And uh, Cash, at, at a certain point, decides he's going to fight back. And there's uh, the, the Billboard ad, I think you mentioned at the beginning of the show. Uh, we got to talk about that. This is, this is an amazing uh, episode. Yes. What, yes. what did Johnny do there? This, this is, I love this story. This is just amazing in so many ways because the fact that he even made the record, it's 45 years later, who 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 would even do that now? But then you take it another step further that he fights back. So he finishes the record at the end of June and he goes on a short tour where he famously plays at Newport in 64 and he plays the bout of Ira Hayes uh, during his set. And all the folk musicians I spoke to, Peter, uh, Pete Seeger and Tom Paxton and they all said that everyone was in awe of Cash and and what he you know what you know just what he his presence as a musician and then he does this about his higher age and this is where he famously meets Dylan and gives him his uh, Martin guitar and so he comes back from this short tour and it's in in, in August of '64 and he learns from Johnny Western and Don Law and others that he, he did the record with that uh, not only weren't they playing the record but they was getting angry hate mail about the, the, the record, uh, you, know, the, you know, hundreds, if not a few thousand radio stations that, again, were so happy to play Ring of Fire, weren't playing the ballad of IRA. So he decides to sit down and write a letter condemning the record industry. And he buys his own record, a few thousand copies of his own record, and he inserts the letter into that, in those records, and he sends them out to the DJs personally. And then Billboard, who had not reviewed Bitter Tears, he contacts them and says, since you're not going to review it and doubtful you'll run this, I'll pay for this uh, letter that I wrote to be placed as a full-page ad. <laughs> and then the letter is just, every line is a stinging uh, uh, you know, reproach and condemnation of the record industry and their cowardice. And, you know, he shames them in every way in terms of, well, it was okay to, to, to talk about Ira Hayes when he served the country as a hero, but it's not okay to, to remind people that this one-time hero died a tragic death. And he links what he's doing to the emerging social movements of the time, and uh, at one point saying that he would sing more of this land, but all of God's children ain't free. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just uh, such a bold statement that, you know, again, uh, you wonder if anyone uh, of Cassius stature today would do something like that and be able to carry it off. Now, you know, he was successful in his campaign. It took months to get the record played, to get the Ballad of Ira Hayes out there, but it did very little to, uh, to get the, to, the record into a wider audience where people, uh, where it would be known in, in his catalog. It, it, it essentially disappeared. But uh, the, the Billboard ad 
made quite a lasting impression on on those people. He said, I have a quote in the book where he says that it got him played, it got him off radio stations more than it got him on. But, you know, he was deeply proud that he, he said what he wanted to say. And, um, you know, and I think it's, I think that overall what he does, what he does with the, with that letter in that record is that he informs us all on our responsibility of being human. And that's a very, very important thing that he was trying to say as the first step in any kind of movement or struggle to uplift people's rights is that, you know, we're, we are all human and we all need to recognize our interest in that and in making sure that the human condition is, is advanced in a progressive way, not a reactionary regressive way. Uh, this is Out the Rabbit Hole, KUCI in Irvine. Robert Larson here uh, speaking today with Antonino D'Ambrosio. We're discussing his book, A Heartbeat and a Guitar, Johnny Cash and the Making of Bitter Tears. And, um, yeah, I have to say we don't have time to really go into all of it uh, tonight, but, uh, you know, uh, great history lessons and there for me about the uh, Native uh, rights mu- movement and... Uh, all these uh, really cool anecdotes uh, about uh, the, oh, this uh, James W. Catfish Cole, a uh, clan leader, and these armed <laughs> Indians that confronted him. Uh, ch- uh, you, you, people listening, you got you, you know, check the book out. There's some just a bunch of great stories like that, and the, the, uh, the uh, termination movement uh, with the American Indians, uh, uh, what the U.S. government was doing there. Uh, fascinating stuff in the uh, uh, Arthur Watkins I believe it was a, a senator yeah. in Utah and that's uh, right yeah interesting character um, but I, I want to ask you uh, doing this book how uh, how has your assessment uh, of cash uh, changed you know from you know prior to discovering bitter tears to where you're at now how 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 is your uh, Im- impression of him changed? I mean, you know, did you did you think of Cash much differently before this? Well, you know, it's interesting. I actually write about that in at the end of my uh, my book when I talk about uh, a little bit about the uh, you know with spending time with my father when I was young. Uh, my my parents are Italian immigrants, and my father was a, a bricklayer, and he loved country music, even though he didn't really speak English. And, uh, you know, when I was young, I was into punk and rap, and I couldn't hear it. And I came to catch some American Recordings albums that he did with Rick Rubin, and so I kind of went backwards. And so this record uh, was transformative in many ways for me in my view of Cash uh, because it kind of, uh, you know, I, I, I always had the feeling that the reason that he had such presence and power in American popular culture was something that was, you know, very uh, sincere and authentic about who he was. But I really quite, I, I couldn't quite understand what it was um, until I really immersed myself in this, in this record. And, re, and then, you know, also kind of my own education around folk music and the importance of that tradition in essentially keeping people alive. This, this music was a sustaining force, force for decades and decades for people who were struggling in some of the worst conditions in American history. 
And, uh, and I think that Cash was an inheritor of that historically. And then there are others that, that he passed that on to. And I think that was the greatest revelation for me. And that's why I think this is, in my opinion, the most important record that he made. And I think it's the, it's, it's the fulcrum of his career, in my opinion. And uh, it's, it's, I think, the truest portrait of he, who he was. And I think it's a very empowering and uplifting thing to discover that in an artist that, because of his success and, and of his stature, it, you know, gets scrubbed clean sometimes. And you're, you're getting uh, only um, a very comfortable portrait of who he was. You know, the man in black and the... the you know, the musician who shows up at Folsom Prison to perform. And, uh, you know, as I said, that, you know, that record is more like a greatest hits record. It's not a record uh, with songs about prison reform. Uh, this is the only record he made that dealt with one social issue. And um, I think what really hooked me, too, is when I discovered he was very clever and very smart, as I mentioned, in terms of how he presented himself and how he was trying to speak on the human condition. And in 72, he goes and meets with Richard Nixon about prison reform, and Richard Nixon asks him to perform uh, Oki from Muskogee and um, Welfare Cadillac, songs that were, you know, to be kind, anti, you know, everything that was going on in terms of the, of the counterculture at the time. And Cash says, you know, very quietly and subtly, I, I don't know those songs, but I, I have a few of my own, <laughs> and, and he plays What is Truth, Man in Black, and he ends by playing The Ballad of Ira Hayes, wow. all, anti, all anti-war songs, and I think that that's the true, you know, at the end of, at the, end of, of, of the day, uh, he saw the power that music has in in, uh, in, to borrow a quote from Albert Camus I have in the book, of soaring above life, you know, pushing us and pulling us forward, you know, in a, in a way that brings us together, uh, you know, and challenges, the, challenges us to, you know, make the, to, to, to play a role in making the human condition better for all people. And um, he never lost sight of that. Yeah. You know, he stayed committed to the, to the Native cause, Throughout the rest of his life, he got involved with Robbie Robertson and Chris Christopherson and Willie Nelson, playing benefits of reservations, supporting Leonard Peltier, uh, all the American Indian movement people I spoke to in the book, which were many, including Dennis Banks, the co-founder, uh, credit him with helping to galvanize the movement, which there was really no movement going on in 64, with the exception of the National Indian Youth Council, which was being buried under the shadow of the civil rights movement. So it's it's a very powerful thing, and I think it, it was uh, for me personally, it was a great validation to see someone who lived so painfully and openly in the world that he was a deeply flawed person. But uh, it it only it only fueled and and uh, and inspired him and inspired him to do to do greater things, and and that's what I think Bitter Tears was for him. Yeah, and I, I also really like uh, the way you uh, make it clear at the end of the book as well that uh, doing this book, doing this research was personally transformative for you and that it helped you uh, become more in touch with 
who you uh, are as an American and your your working class roots. And you, you mentioned your father as an immigrant and, you know, the kind of the American story. And that was touching. I really liked that. And uh, anything else you want to leave us with before we got to close out here, Antonino? Let me thank you for, for taking the time. It's been great fun speaking with you about this. And, uh, you know, I, I definitely, uh, one of the, the things that I think is most important about this is that this is uh, Johnny Cash helps reveal and expose a, a hidden and unknown cultural history in this country that's vitally important for us in the present and in the future. And, and I highly encourage people to experience that. Uh, not just in the book, but by also listening to the record. It's incredibly moving, powerful, and, and enlightening, and, uh, and, and, and worth a listen or two. Okay. Uh, Antonino D'Ambrosio, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. Thanks, Robert. I appreciate it. All right. And that book is A Heartbeat and a Guitar, Johnny Cash and the Making of Bitter Tears. And, uh, yes, uh, check that out. You uh, will find this a utterly enjoyable uh, and moving book uh, to read, a powerful book. Uh, and, uh, yes, <laughs> A Heartbeat and a Guitar, Johnny Cash and the Making of Bitter Tears. Uh, well, we're out of time here, and uh, Kate will be coming up in uh, just a few minutes with the gum tree. Excellent music, always here on uh, KUCI in Irvine. And I uh, am Robert Larson, and want to remind you once more that the opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management, or the UC Board of Regents. And if you want to give me some feedback on the show, I always appreciate that. You can email me at rglarson at org. And, uh, yes, this is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We're also on the web at org. I'll be uh, talking to you next week.